Welcome and thanks for joining us on The Pivot, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we'll be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors in a meaningful way. We have prioritized guidance and practices that advance equity and remove barriers for the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized and oftentimes excluded. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the punitive approaches that often form part of institutions and a new opportunity to connect families to holistic and culturally relevant community supports. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to improve child and family safety. We hope that you will use these short yet meaningful dialogues to engage in discussions within your own organizations. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Good afternoon, good morning, depending on where you are. My name is Wendy Moza, and I am the host for the Pivot Towards Promising Futures, a podcast about um, the work we do um, and uh, was created originally to stimulate conversation nationwide on activism, on prevention and interventions, and the different types of work that we know works with uh, family, children, and survivors of domestic violence. Uh, today, we have a very, very, very special guest and a very special episode. We're actually uh, recording live with Mary Catherine Nagel, who we thank very much for being here a second time. And uh, we are excited not only because you're here with us again, uh, uh, Mary Kay, and maybe you can introduce yourself in a moment, but also because this is uh, sort of like a follow-up to a conversation we already had. Um, we know that there was a ruling in, uh, at the Supreme Court in June regarding um, ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act. And so today's conversation is a follow-up to the first conversation, really to talk about the meaning of the ruling and kind of thinking uh, moving forward, what does that mean not only for Indian country, but child welfare, children, and families in our nation. We'd also, before we begin, like to say a very special thank you to our partners at the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center who have been so kind in uh, lending us uh, their time, guidance, and expertise, and really being a thought partner in exploring how to have or host these spaces where we can facilitate these type of very important conversation. So welcome again, everyone, and Mary um, MK. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself before we begin? Yes, hello, good morning, good afternoon. My name is Mary Catherine Nagel. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. I use she, her pronouns, and I am outside counsel to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. It's, it's very nice to be with you all this afternoon slash morning, depending on where you are. Yes. Thank you, MK. So should we dive right in? Sure. Okay, let's do it. So I said this a little while ago, but when we last spoke, 
you know, there was a lot of things going on. The ruling hadn't started. Um, I mean, haven't hadn't had not taken place yet. I think we, we probably recorded in April or May earlier this year. Um, I think maybe for grounding purposes, it would be helpful to talk a little bit about terminology. You know, um, folks sometimes use uh, Native American children, Indian children, you know, um, and depending on what space you're in, whether it's mainstream or a very culture-specific space, I sometimes hear the, the, you know, the difference in terminology. So wondering if we can start there and maybe you can talk a little bit about what is the proper way to, to refer to Indian children and families. It's a great question, and I think it's one that um, even Native people are discussing and non-Natives ask, right? How do I be a good ally? What term do I use? And I think um, one thing that's important to point out is that Indian under federal Indian law has a very specific meaning. Indian is used in our United States Constitution. And of course, there's a whole sort of movement nowadays to say Indigenous instead of Indian. And Indigenous is a wonderful term, right? It, you know, it broadly refers to, you know, if you're indigenous, that could be indigenous to the land that is now known as El Salvador. It could be indigenous to the land that is now known as Canada. You could be indigenous to Russia. I, you know, it, it, indigenous is not specific to the United States. And so in that way, it's very nice, very inclusive. Um, however, Indian is a, is, an, is a specific and important term. And I think people do criticize Indian because they say, well, that's just an English term that was based off of the fact that Christopher Columbus got lost and thought this was India at first, and so that's the only reason we're called Indians. And that's true. Um, but again, indigenous is also not an indigenous word. It is from the English language. So is Native American. So we're, we're talking about which term from English to use for Native or indigenous people that really, like, traditionally, right, what we would be um, called would be by our nation. So I'm Cherokee, and even Cherokee is a... Um, alter version, an altered version of what we would call ourselves, Chalagi. So, you know, um, and I think that's true. A lot of tribes have sort of the word they use for themselves versus the sort of more Anglo-Saxon English word. And so the point is just, there's a lot of different words. It can feel very confusing. I try to focus on what do people want to be called, right? Some people will say, I want to be called Lakota because yes, I'm indigenous or I'm native, but I'm I'm Lakota. I'm a citizen of Oglala Sioux Nation and I want to, you know. Um, however, when we're talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act, Indian has a very specific term legally. Again, going back to the fact that Indian is what the framers use in the U.S. Constitution because at that time, are sovereign tribal governments that predate the United States were known as Indian tribes. Today, we say indigenous nations, tribal nations, but the Constitution refers to us as Indian tribes and talks about Indians. And um, so federal Indian law has been built off of this constitutional groundwork, right? Which this, you know, the U.S. Constitution recognizes Indian tribes as one of three sovereigns that exist in the United States. You've got the United States federal government, you've got state governments, and you've got tribal nations or what the Constitution calls Indian tribes. And so because the United States signed treaties with Indian tribes, the United States under the U.S. Constitution owes treaty and trust duties to the citizens of those tribes. And really, since the United States came into existence, the way in which the United States as a federal government, as a sovereign entity, 
has referred to the citizens of those Indian tribes mentioned in the Constitution is to call them Indians. And so Indian under federal Indian law means citizen of a tribal nation or what the Constitution calls Indian tribes, that a sovereign government that predates the United States. It's a political term. You can be indigenous, right, and be from a tribal nation in Mexico and not technically be an Indian under federal Indian law for purposes of the United States law, right? You can be indigenous from Canada and not be an Indian under U.S. law. And so the Indian Child Welfare Act, which we're talking about today, talks talks in terms of Indian children, which is defined by the act as a child that's a citizen of a tribal nation, a tribal nation in the United States, not a tribal nation in Africa, not a tribal nation in Australia or New Zealand, but the United States. And so that's how I think the terminology, it's just helpful to understand from a legal perspective what it means, but also why some people might prefer the term indigenous or Native American as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that distinction. So let's let's um, kind of go back to what we were talking about, what happened in June, right? Um, I imagine that there was like a very big sense of release for Indian people after June, right? The ruling came in, it was announced. Um, but despite that, I feel like, you know, it was cautionary victory, you know? It was... There was a sense of release, yes, and maybe it was because there was absolutely so much at stake, right? Like, there was so much that could have happened in so many different directions. I still kind of sense this, yes, relief and caution. So I guess my question to you, MK, is did this ruling feel like a victory for you? And then maybe share your thoughts about what it meant for for Indian country in general from your experience in working with your colleagues and and such? It's a great question. For me personally, it felt like a huge victory, um, monumental. I think I put it next to the victory we had in McGirt in July of 2020 as one of the top two most significant Supreme Court victories we've had in my lifetime. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's it's a very big deal. It is a huge victory. And I think that the majority of Indian country, um, especially those attorneys who practice federal Indian law or who work on the Indian Child Welfare Act, feel that way. And for good reason. At the same time, even though it's a huge celebration, I do think, um, again, those attorneys who work on the Indian Child Welfare Act, we know additional attacks are coming. And in fact, not too long after the decision came out, I was asked to speak on a panel at the Arizona Supreme Court um, for Arizona state court judges. And there were also some tribal court judges there as well in Arizona. And if you know, Arizona is home to the Goldwater Institute. And they're one of the main entities attacking the Indian Child Welfare Act. And their main attorney, their sort of head counsel, is a gentleman named Timothy Sandifer. And I was on a panel with Timothy Sandifer. And he stood up in front of that entire room and told all the Arizona state court judges and tribal judges in that room from the state of Arizona that he was encouraging every person he could possibly find who wanted to adopt an Indian child but somehow didn't wasn't able to get that Indian child, maybe because that Indian child went to his or her grandmother. Or, you know, I mean, you could think of the different reasons why Indian children are not available for non-Indians because um, they end up with their family or someone else in their tribal nation. But Timothy Sandifer told the whole audience that he was going to tell any non-Indian trying to adopt an Indian child who doesn't succeed in doing that to immediately raise challenges, uh, equal protection challenges, and to argue that it violates their constitutional rights. They are co- going to try to come back even stronger than before 
And that's why I think we have to, we have to celebrate because we have to celebrate wins like this. Uh, you know, the, the deck was stacked against us. We have, um, you know, we have in reality um, a, a Supreme Court made of justices who in large part don't study federal Indian law in law school. You know, we have Justice Gorsuch there who ha- approaches federal Indian law from an intellectual perspective. He places it on the pedestal it deserves to be placed on and respects it and respects you know, our position in the Constitution is tribal nations. And that's a new thing. And that's an exciting thing. And I think it's had a very positive effect on some of his colleagues on the Supreme Court. But at the same time, we have a lot of things stacked against us when we're uh, when we're litigating in the Supreme Court against non-Indian parties. And historically, if you look at the entire, if you look at the existence of the U.S. Supreme Court, most of the time, when it's a tribal nation versus a non-tribal entity, the tribal nation loses. And that's that's just been the case. And so, you know, knowing that Goldwater Institute is gunning for us, literally, um, is alarming. And I and I think so I think a lot of um a lot of the practitioners who work with the Indian Child Welfare Act or who work to protect native families or native children are concerned and just know that it's like, we got to take this moment and celebrate because this work is really hard and you have to celebrate your victories. um, Otherwise you might burn out. And also like you have to, you just, we deserve to celebrate victories, right? Um, Sometimes it can feel, I mean, as an attorney who's worked on these cases, um, I mean, the outcomes are not always the best for the child of the tribal nation. And, and they can be really sad when, a child is taken from their family and placed with strangers, and those those ties aren't aren't kept. And you know you know what trauma that's going to bring that child later yeah. on in life when they want to connect with who they are and their family. And anyways, it's all it can be. These can be really hard cases to work on, and so it's, it is so important to celebrate a victory like yeah. this. But we also have to prepare because um, we won a battle in a larger war. We haven't won the war yet. And but then again, I always say. I think we're, <laughs> we've been fighting the same war since 1492, mm-hmm. and uh, this is this is just an extension of that. And so, just as much as our ancestors survived what they survived, we'll survive this too. But we we have to be vigilant. Yeah, that's a lot. You know, it's a lot, and it's it's almost like it, it reminds us that this is yes about. Indian country, Indian children, Indian families. It's also about all of us, right? It reminds us that um, while we can stop and celebrate, we also have to, like you said, continue to just be vigilant and um, and just support one another. I think oftentimes when we have these types of conversations, it's very easy to other, you know, like, yeah, we can support them because it's them. But uh, I feel this uh, you know, at a personal and professional level, this is about all of us, including how we can, you know, obviously support and be allies. So, you know, MK, when we talked about this last time, the actual ruling, <clears throat> obviously the overturning of ICWA would have had very specific consequences for children and families. Um and, not but, and, would you say that tribal sovereignty in general was also at stake uh, before the ruling came in? And, and if so, why? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that was the goal of the lawsuit brought by Gibson Dunn. So 
when you look at what Gibson Dunn did strategically in this lawsuit, Holland versus Brackeen, you know, we're talking about the law firm that just like six months before this law firm filed the attack on the Indian Child Welfare Act that resulted in this Supreme Court decision, they were representing the Dakota Access Pipeline out at Standing Rock. Back, if you remember, in 2016 and 2017, when Standing Rock, Cheyenne River Sioux, Yankton Sioux, a bunch of tribes, well, really from all across Indian country, stood with these tribes in the Dakotas and said, no, Army Corps of Engineers, you should never have granted this easement to Dakota Access to cross the river. One, you're you're going to destroy sacred sites and burial grounds. Two, you're going to violate treaty rights. Three, you're going to harm, you know, tribal nations drinking water. And we have federal laws that protect all of those things and also give tribes a right to be consulted, to to, um, to consultation. And the, the federal government didn't do that in granting Dakota Access this um this easement. And so that's what that lawsuit was about. There was a whole movement around it. Mm-hmm. And what Gibson Dunn did in that case was their client, who they represented, the Dakota Access Pipeline Company, less than 24 hours after Standing Rock filed paperwork in the federal district court where the litigation was, outlining exactly where the human burials were in the path of the pipeline, Gibson Dunn's client the next morning was out there with bulldozers literally digging up the human remains and destroying them. Um, So, you know, that's what we're talking about here is a law firm that's willing to represent a client that will do that. And I think that, you know, that's about as anti-tribal sovereignty as you can get, right? And I think that there was a lesson learned for the oil and gas industry because, you know, yes, there was this lawsuit, but then this larger movement coalesced around the lawsuit. And I think the oil and gas industry realized, wow, this costs us money. If we mm-hmm. can't just bulldoze over tribal nations, and which is literally what Dakota Access did and, and actually got away with. Um, but I think that they saw the writing on the wall. They're like, well, tribal nations have sovereignty. They have protections. And this right. could cost, cost us money. So Gibson Dunn is definitely looking for a way to address that. They filed this lawsuit like six months after, um, you know, the sort of the Standing Rock movement was disbanded from the camp there at at Sacred Stone. Gibson Dunn has also filed a lawsuit in federal court in the state of Washington, arguing that the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act is unconstitutional, using similar arguments to the arguments they used in Holland versus Brackeen. So when you step back and you look at how this lawsuit over ICWA factors mm-hmm. into Gibson Dunn's larger scheme, you see that it is an anti-tribal sovereignty effort, right? It's they're, they're, they're picking different federal statutes to try to attack us in. You know, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a multi-layered, multi-faceted, right. you know, very strategic approach. But at the end of the day, um, I think the goal is to really eliminate the inherent sovereign right of our tribal nations to self-govern. And when Mm -hmm. I say self-govern, I mean protect our lands, protect our people, protect our sacred sites, protect our resources, our drinking water, our children. So it is an all-frontal attack. It's, It's almost like different angles, right? Aiming at one thing, but different angles and trying, unfortunately, trying their luck in different ways. So you mentioned Holland and Burkine. Let's stay here for a moment, MK. <clears throat> you know, for many, and, and the reason why I want to stay here is because I think I, I really appreciate it at the beginning of the conversation you were talking, you're making the distinction between political and, and race, right? A lot of people cannot 
understand or don't understand why, you know, uh, Burkina versus Holland um, really was a political case and not it didn't have to do with race, right? So I think oftentimes people are like, well, you know, the argument is there's a, a willing, kind, loving family that wants to adopt a child and the child just happens to be Indian. There should be nothing preventing this child from going into this loving, caring home. And, you know, although we know and, 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 uh, and a lot of our colleagues know that ICWA was actually enacted because of the violent history that this country has, right, and has um, unfortunately really uh, led against Indian country, right? We know that's why it came into place. Oftentimes people people are like, well, it is about race. It's not political. And in fact, Justice Gorsuch stated that ICWA was an intentional redress for intentional longstanding genocidal acts of violence, right? So can you just, you know, tell our listeners or talk to us a little bit about why this particular case was political and not racial? Absolutely. So I think a couple things that are important to remember um, two things. One, first, the Indian Child Welfare Act oftentimes, and I've worked on many cases where the Indian Child Welfare Act applied and non-Indian parents, adoptive parents, adopted an Indian child. So, you know, and that's kind of the first thing I think important to point out is that ICWA doesn't actually, even though Goldwater Institute and Gibson Dunn want you to think that ICWA prohibits Indian, non-Indian parents from adopting Indian children. It actually does not. And oftentimes, even when ICWA applies, uh, we see Indian children going to non-Indian parents. And that's because ICWA just provides what we call placement preferences. And the goal of ICWA is to keep an Indian family together if, um, if that's really not going to harm that child, right? And so I say that because you know, if you think of an example of where maybe the parents are alcoholics or abusive or abusing drugs, um, those are situations where ICWA does not mandate that the child stay with the family. But in situations where the child's being removed for pretenses that have nothing to do with the health, safety, and welfare of the child, which certainly, as Justice Gorsuch noted, in his opinion, was what was happening when Congress passed this act, Congress created procedural safeguards to just say, okay, if it's an Indian child, we just want to be safe here because we see all the prejudice, we see the racism, we see the, the bias against Indian families, and we want to keep them together. And also we recognize that inherent sovereign right of tribal nations to have a say in what happens to their own citizens, just like you would expect the United States to have a say in what happens to its citizens. And so Really, it was a procedural statute. It also gives tribes the right to intervene in state court if their, you know, child citizen is up for adoption in state court. And so in that way, I think it's really important for people to understand just sort of like what ICWA does and does not do. And so, you know, oftentimes um, if, you know, if the parents really cannot be rehabilitated, they're just they're just not in a healthy place and they can't parent, then their rights get terminated. And if there's not someone in that child's extended family or tribal nation or another native family that can take that child, then they end up with, with non-Indian parents. And that happens frequently and ICWA doesn't prohibit that. Now, that still, even that being the case, what I think, uh, because initially Goldwater was arguing that and Gibson Dunn, and they started to refine their argument to say, okay, well, putting that aside that, yeah, ICWA still sometimes lets Indian children be adopted by non-Indian parents and certainly doesn't prohibit it. The placement preferences in the statute say that if it's an Indian child, 
and that child's going to be put in a foster home or an adoptive placement, you have to first prioritize that child's biological family. Second, you have to look to that child's other families within that child's travel nation or third, other Indian families. That third, other Indian families outside of the child's family and tribal nation, that violates, that's, that is a, um, a racist um, provision in the statute because it's choosing other Indian families based on race and not a political classification. And that's their argument. Now, why is it a political classification and not a racial classification? Again, you have to understand who we are as Indian people vis-a-vis the U.S. Constitution, okay? Because we we predate the U.S. Constitution. So the U.S. Constitution didn't make us unconstitutional. We're pre-constitutional. And when the U.S. Constitution came along, the framers were like, okay, great, Indian tribes are here. We're going to give the authority to deal with them. We're going to centralize that in the federal government, give it to Congress, and, and that any treaty signed with with tribal nations is the supreme law of the land. That's the treaty clause in the U.S. Constitution. Fast forward to post-Civil War, and that's where the Equal Protection Amendment comes in, right? So this whole racial argument and violation of equal protection, we're talking about constitutional language that was created in 1868. So you have to understand it in the context of, one, the U.S. Constitution itself, before the 14th Amendment, called us Indians, right? And refer to Indian tribes as political sovereigns that predate the United States and continue to exist. When equal protection was created in the Civil War Amendments, specifically the 14th Amendment, there was a whole debate in the Senate of, should we include Indians? Because here we are, and and, and, and we have to remember why the 14th Amendment was passed, which I think is a larger um, issue we have politically in the United States right now, is what is the 14th Amendment and why do we have it? I would suggest, I think there's strong evidence to show that the 14th Amendment was specifically passed to protect the rights of newly freed slaves, not white people. And that's just the truth of why that amendment was passed. But you can see today it's being characterized as this constitutional amendment that was meant to say the government can never take into account race, right? And all this anti-affirmative action cases. And I don't I don't actually think that's what people thought in 1860s, right? After right. the Civil War. I think they right. thought, wow, we have these newly freed slaves who are being discriminated against because they're newly freed slaves <laughs> because they're black. And so we need to protect them, not we better protect white people. Um, and so you can see the 14th Amendment is already being taken out of its historical context in other legal areas. But specifically as it applies to Indians, there was a whole debate in the Senate in 1868, and they rejected an amendment to the 14th Amendment that would have added Indians to the 14th Amendment and said, nope, this has nothing to do with them. This is about newly freed slaves, not Indians. Strangely or interestingly, um, just a couple decades later, an Omaha Indian by the name of Elk filed a lawsuit saying, well, under the 14th Amendment, I have equal protection rights, and I should have the same right to vote. I'm a U.S. citizen now under the 14th Amendment because I was born on this soil, and the 14th Amendment protects my right to vote. And the U.S. Supreme Court looked at that and said, no, the 14th Amendment does not apply to Indians because when the Senate uh, passed the 14th Amendment, they rejected an amendment that would incorporate Indians. And because of that, we're the only group of Americans today where our U.S. citizenship doesn't come through the Constitution. It comes through a congressional statute that Congress passed in 1924, saying all Indians, all citizens of tribal nations are now U.S. citizens. The irony of the argument that Gibson Dunn and Goldwater are making is that if they were to convince the Supreme Court to basically change you know, hundreds of years of Supreme Court precedent and the plain language of the Constitution— 
and say that Indian is a race-based classification, not political, and that it's subject to strict scrutiny under the 14th Amendment, the actual Citizenship Citizenship, citizenship Act from 1924 that gave us citizenship in the United States would be unconstitutional because it refers to us as Indians, because Indians means citizen of a tribal nation. And that's, again, being an Indian is being a citizen of a federally recognized tribe in the United States. Federally recognized tribes are sovereign tribal governments that predate the United States and continue to exist today. You could be indigenous or Native American and be from a tribal nation in Canada and not be Indian under federal Indian law in the United States because you don't have that political classification of being a citizen of a tribal nation that predates the United States here in the United States. And, the, you know, the other thing that's important to remember, too, is that we have, you know, if you think about racially, we have people who are citizens of tribal nations today who, you know, pass for white, look black, look Asian, look like if you want to talk about racial or ethnicity, we have all kinds of people from all the whole spectrum who are citizens of tribal nations today and are Indians under federal Indian law. And that's, Mm -hmm. it's a hard thing for people to understand because I think, you know, even, even though I don't think that we've educated people enough on the history of the 14th Amendment, look at where the case law in the Supreme Court's going Mm -hmm. these days, um, at least people are somewhat familiar with it. And I think Americans do sometimes start to think of race as a black and white issue. And it just, Indians don't fit into that, right? Gotcha, yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's a little complicated. But when Congress passes a law saying, you know, um, tribes will have criminal jurisdiction over Indians and non-Indians alike, that use of Indian is not a racial classification. It's a political classification. It's referring to citizenship in a sovereign nation. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. I think, you know, even I, if I want to, you know, in full transparency, I get it, but always listening to the way you explain it, um, helps me learn a little bit more. So thank you for taking your time and explaining that, you know, um, MK, I, uh, I am part of the children and youth department at Futures Without Violence. And, you know, we work obviously with children and youth and families and, Uh, We do a lot of work with uh, systems, including child welfare and survivors of domestic violence. I'm saying all that to say that, you know, we we we're always thinking about ways to really lift uh, the good in kids and families, but specifically how it relates to how these children, these families, these survivors interact with systems. One of the things that we um, uh, use, uh, have uh, developed in partnership with some colleagues is the protective factors, right? So when we think of protective factors and we think of healthy families and healthy children, what are some things that could be in place that can really lift some of uh, these uh, uh, protective factors for families? So we think of social, cultural, and spiritual connections. We think of safer and more safer and more stable conditions. We uh, uh, have another one about resilience and a growth mindset, nurturing parent-child interactions, social and emotional abilities. And when I was preparing for today's conversation with you, I was thinking about, you know, um, something you said the last time we talked. Uh, no one is saying that they're 
they're not going to be situations where children may need additional support, where families may need uh, um, additional supports. What we're saying is, you know, what we've been talking about today is what does that look like for Indian children, Indian uh, families, right? And so I, I mentioned the protective factors because I wanted to hear your thoughts on, and, and you, you said very specifically that ICWA is procedural, right? But is there a way that ICWA uh, can provide guidance in how uh, Indian children are cared for within the child welfare system? Is that a place where guidance can come from, or is it another conversation, you know, another um, law, or is it something else that providers can um really start thinking about. But, you know, my question to you is just that, is there guidance in, in, in ICWA as it relates to Indian children and how they're cared for in uh, the child welfare system? I mean, really the only guidance that ICWA gives is just that the tribe, like if you're in the state welfare system and you have an Indian child, that the tribe has the right to intervene in the proceeding and transfer that case to tribal court. Mm-hmm. And essentially take over that case. Okay. Um, and and that's that's really kind of it. If the if the tribe does not intervene, and that the tribes don't always intervene. Also, you can imagine um it can be very burdensome to have to constantly be paying attorneys to go file motions to intervene in 50 different states to, you know, it's just some tribes don't have the resources to, or um sometimes they don't receive notice, even though the statute requires oh, them to receive notice. Because wow. yeah, because the state um, child welfare department doesn't care to provide that notice. Um, so, you know, beyond that, and I mean, I think that's what's important, right? It's because if, if you are transferring to a tribal child welfare department, they're going to have those connections to cultural resources in terms of, uh-huh. you know, different healing programs, different, uh-huh. um, you know, for the parents, kind of recovery, intergenerational trauma healing programs, cultural programs, like, you know, yeah, being being connected to who you are and your culture and your faith and and your community and your ceremonies and your traditions has been proven to increase oh, mental health, right? And um, to address some of the underlying issues. And of course, as you point out, like, you know, if you can address um, safe housing, a lot of times uh, the reason families get broken up is because you've got a mother trying to flee domestic violence mm-hmm. and she's got to choose... Do I lose my children or possibly my life? Because if she leaves, then she doesn't have stable housing. And then the state can come in and take her children because she's homeless, right? And so providing, you know, safe housing to um, survivors of domestic violence. You know, there's a lot of different things that tribes can do to protect families and protect children and keep them safe. Uh And um, I think ICWA has the different procedures in place to enable tribes to use their sovereign authority to protect their own children. And of course, when it was violated, um, at the end of the day, it, the person it harms the most is the Indian child. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, and beyond that, if a child is in a state welfare program, it doesn't really, it doesn't really tell the state welfare program how to treat that child or what to do with that child. And that's a lot of the reasons why we see our, our children, Indian children in state welfare programs have some of the highest rates of abuse of any child to go through a state welfare program. Some of the numbers out out of Alaska and Texas and other states are just staggering in terms of the rate of abuse of Indian children in state uh, welfare programs. 
Yeah. You know, you said something that caught my attention because, yeah, people people have different interpretation and define equa to do different things, some of which it doesn't do. But you said even when laws like this are, you know, have been enacted for a specific reason, you, you just, I think I just heard you say, there's some times where tribal nations aren't notified, right? If an Indian child goes into uh, the child welfare system. So can you explain a little bit, like, what, what would that process look like, right? Is it that it's an automatic, like, okay, this child is an, there's, you know, let's say there's a, a mandated report, right? And this child uh, is an Indian child. I, I guess my curiosity is, how are tribal nations notified? And is there any legislation or responsibility around that? Yeah, ICWA requires that you notify the tribal nation. And so um, even if you're, if you, even if you can't prove in that moment that the child is Indian, so sometimes, you know, people will say, oh, my grandmother was Cherokee, and so this uh-huh. child is definitely Indian. Turns uh-huh. out that's just a myth. Your grandma is not Cherokee, but it's what your parents told you growing up because it's right. super common in the United States. Um, you still have to, if the court, if that is, if that, you know, if, the, if that has been said, then you need to notify the tribe, and then they can look at the situation and say, Okay, who who is this child? Was their date of birth? Who, you know, who's their family? And figure out if they are actually a citizen or eligible for citizenship in that tribal nation. A lot of times, um, they're they're not, and um, and so it really, you know, there's a duty to to basically ask: Is the child native or an Indian uh-huh. child? And a lot of times, um, child welfare services just won't do that because they don't want yeah. to. Um, but that is technically a violation. Gotcha. Um, the law currently requires that. And, and and again, like I said, like all that has to happen is the child or the parent, the per, the parent whose rights might be terminated, right, has to say, we're Native, we're Indian, and then you have to notify that tribe. And again, it might be that they're not, and it might be that the tribe looks at it and says, nope, not one of ours, but you still have to notify to give the yeah. tribe that chance to look at that situation. Yeah. Thank you so much for explaining that. So much more I want to ask, but I know that we're running out of time here and there's there's still a couple of questions and then we can open it up to see if any questions came in from the audience. So, you know, uh, the ruling came in June um, and it was favorable. How or not how, more, where do we go from here? Uh, do you believe, A, that ICWA is out of the quote-unquote, danger zone? And I think you answered that a little bit or you touched upon that a little bit at the beginning. Um, it's it's this caution, right, that comes with the relief, right? But do you think that ICWA is out of the danger zone right now? Great question. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> and again, you know, referring to, like, what Timothy yeah. Sandifer said before, like, all of Arizona state court judges and many tribal court judges, um, I was watching the tribal court judges in the room, just their eyes go like, oh my God. Um, so we're still very much in the danger zone. I think one of the most important things we can do is is like what, what was happening there in that room, because thankfully, Timothy Sandifer was saying what he was saying, but I was able to speak. And also Dean Stacy Leeds, who is another Cherokee Nation citizen like me, but she's the dean of ASU Law School. Mm. And uh, we both got to talk at that same panel 
And we got to provide our perspective on what the Constitution says and the reality of how the 14th Amendment was created and for what purpose and what it says and what it doesn't say. Um, and the fact that it was supposed to include Indians and that got voted down and all of that, right? And so um, I think there were a lot of, I was watching like a lot of non-Native state court judges kind of nod their head and say, oh, because again, that's not something they studied in K through 12 school or college or law school. And so we have like have a need for a massive education campaign um, about why Indian is a political and not racial classification under federal law, right? And, and just to be clear, that doesn't mean that Native people can't be discriminated against on the color of their skin. Like, that happens. And that is mm-hmm. that is racial discrimination, right? Uh, when people, I mean, you know, now, to be very clear, like, I'm someone who really hasn't experienced that kind of discrimination because I passed for white. And so, but we have... Indian people, Native people who are darker colored. We even have people who appear um, black because they have black ancestry in addition to being citizen of a tribal mm-hmm. nation. And they're discriminated against on that on those grounds too. And so it's, I don't want to sit here and say that like Native people don't experience discrimination based on race. We do. It's just that when Congress is fulfilling its constitutional duty to pass legislation addressing citizens in tribal nations that predate the United States, the individuals who wrote the Constitution said those are Indian tribes and those are Indians. And it has nothing to do with the 14th Amendment because these are relationships that predate the United States. And so that's what we really got to get across to um, to folks, to just to general Americans, because I think to your point, like a lot, again, we've kind of learned about the 14th Amendment in this very black and white way, which because Turns out it was actually passed to protect Black people and really no one else. Uh-huh, <laughs> um, it's uh-huh. been expanded to protect women and other uh-huh. classifications of people. And, and and I think that's great in many respects. But it certainly was not passed to prohibit Congress from fulfilling its constitutional duties to fulfill the treaty promises that the United States made in signing treaties with tribal nations, with Indian tribes, right? And if we continue to exist in a country where your average American is clueless about this, then we're very vulnerable in the courts because even though the courts are seen as sort of an elitist institution that, you know, if you go to Yale or Harvard and get appointed by a president, you get to go sit on one of them. Um, And that's not most of us, right? Um, They are impacted by media and by, um, you know, public thought. And so when journalists are getting it right and actually telling the correct story about who we are as Indian people, that's very helpful. When they're getting it wrong, um, that can be really harmful because justices listen to NPR, they watch Fox News, they go to the movies, they go to live theater, you know, they watch the opera, they watch TV. I mean, so again, getting the educating general Americans on who we are and what our relationship is to the Constitution um, is really important. Yeah, very important, and I really appreciate that that point, MK. And it's 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 also this whole othering, right? I think sometimes people see these these types of issues like, yeah, we can we can support and we can be allies, but it really doesn't affect us. And I think, you know, in the past several years in this country, we've seen you know federal laws be challenged in in a way that we never thought we would see. Right. Like uh, ICWA obviously being one of them, but really thinking about, you know, 
not only how can we be allies and supporters of Indian country and, you know, tribal sovereignty, but really thinking about this is this is an us issue as well, right? Um, to to kind of start, you know, in the in the concluding and, and wrapping up wrapping up space uh, of our time together, MK, I'd like to ask you one one more question from the Q and A, and maybe take one or two that have come up while we've been talking. And you know, last time I spoke to you, you had very concrete ways in. Uh, and describing how allyship can look, right? A lot of organization and individuals, some work in mainstream organizations, others work in culture-specific organizations, some advocates, social workers. We have, you know, um, our audience, our listeners, they're really thinking about how they can support Indian country. I loved something you said last time, which was uh, hire, uh, Indian people, like, like, let's start there, listen to, you know, their stories directly from them, you know. Um, and I think you mentioned, I, I want to say the New York Times, really, I think just keeping a critical mind was your point, right? Is there anything that comes up for you now that the ruling has happened, that there is relief and victory, but there's also uh, a sense of caution in the air? What can organizations, individuals do to really support tribal sovereignty and and, and ICWA? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And I think everything you just mentioned is great. I also think, you know, I... um, Sitting and listening to Timothy Sandifer speak in that panel and what he had to say uh, was, was really quite shocking. And I think... One thing I will say just to everyone and to our allies out there, be very cautious, be aware, uh, be afraid mm-hmm. of any white man who tells you um, he that he must fight to declare have a, the Supreme Court declare unconstitutional a statute that calls us Indians because he's doing that for our for our best interest, right? That's um, that's not true, and mm-hmm. I think it's there's there's this aspect of white savior mode going on, which is really masking what is beneath all of the white savior mode, which is we want those resources, right? We want access to tribal lands. We want to dismantle tribal sovereignty. We want the oil and gas on those tribal lands. And we don't want these doctrines of tribal sovereignty that slow us down and decrease our profit margins. And if you step back and look at all of American history, That's always been the case, right? Uh Like, why did we have boarding schools? Well, what was said Uh to us is this is what's best for your children. But really what the goal of that policy was, was to disrupt our tribal nations and our tribal communities so that more of our lands could be taken. And so that the, quote unquote, the Indian wars, when you had Custer and Cook and all those generals out there, Pratt fighting tribal nations, they said, well, this is really costly. We're losing these battles on the battlefield. Let's just take their children. Right. Yeah. And so I think what we need right now is help, again, educating people about this mm-hmm. and where where is Goldwater coming from and where is Gibson Dunn coming from? And I I think there needs to be some political backlash. There needs to yeah. be a political cost to them for waging this war against us, whether it's people writing letters to the editor, criticizing Goldwater or Gibson Dunn, whether it's folks. If you look at the list of Gibson Dunn's clientele, who they serve, there are people on there like liberal, progressive people that 
get their legal services at Gibson Dunn. And mm-hmm. I just think there's a lot that we can do to not let Gibson Dunn and Goldwater just get away with attacking yeah. Indian children and us like this. Yeah. And I think we really need allies to help us with that because if it's just something Native people care about, uh, unfortunately, we're not enough um, to really move the needle. Yeah. Our, voice, our voices are powerful, don't get me wrong. But, you know, genocide was very successful in this country. And so we just don't have the numbers mm-hmm. to, to move that needle. But with our allies, we do. And I, and I think, you know, the, there should be consequences to any entity that wants to take on a white savior mode argument to really, at the end of the day, just get at our resources and lands. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, MK. Um, we have just a couple of questions. I know we're almost at time, but uh, one of the audience questions came in and, and is, why did Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito not agree with the upholding of ICWA, in your opinion? Well, um, I mean, you can certainly read what they wrote. Um, I mean, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I, I mean, it, hmm. um, Justice Thomas has been attacking tribal sovereignty and our, like, we're mentioned, Indian tribes are mentioned in the, what's known as the Indian Commerce Clause in the Constitution. He's been attacking that for decades. Um, his attacks haven't really gotten anywhere. Like, no one else is really jumping on the, like, let's destroy the Indian Commerce Clause train. Uh-huh. Um, why is that his hill to die on? Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I I can't... Uh, Speak for it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, is it is it just prejudice against Native people? Is it that he um, thinks we don't deserve to exist anymore? Is it, I, I don't, I, I don't know, you mm-hmm. know, because uh, it's not a viewpoint I have. Um, right. And I don't, I don't intellectually or emotionally understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, Alito, you know, I think he's another one who um, comes from a, a deep uh, groundswell of white privilege. Mm-hmm. I don't think he understands who Indian tribes are. I don't think he was ever educated on that growing up in his education all the way through law school. I don't think that he um, has had a lot of experience with tribal nations or Native people. Mm. And I think that he is very anti-affirmative action and the different ways in which the, you know, um, different policies have been used to try to address the, you know, systemic racism in the United States in large part against Black people, but other marginalized communities as well. And I think Justice Alito doesn't like that. And I think part of the movement to reshape the entire 14th Amendment to make things like, you know, affirmative action and, and university admissions policies unconstitutional mm-hmm. is re- is literally rewriting the 14th Amendment. And so this this is right in line with that. If you can, if you can take uh, a population of people who politically were excluded from the 14th Amendment by the people who wrote the 14th Amendment and add them in now, you mm-hmm. can kind of do anything you want to rewrite mm-hmm. the 14th Amendment because that's a that's pretty crazy. So I think there's a lot of reasons for, for people, for justices who maybe want to dismantle the use of like laws and policies that do affirmative action for people who are 
members of groups that have been historically marginalized or discriminated against. If you're if you're opposed to those kinds of policies, again, rewriting the 14th Amendment in any shape or form can be helpful to, yeah. to that movement. Thank you. There are a couple more questions. One is about any reading recommendations to learn more about this topic. And I think we can most certainly... Um, maybe compile something offline and send it off to readers or make it available. Uh, but is there maybe one reading or, or anything that comes to mind that you would recommend for our listeners? I mean, I think if you're going to read anything, you know, Kate Fort is an author who writes a lot about the Indian Child Welfare Act. She's an expert on it. I mean, anything she's written mm-hmm. is amazing and you'll learn, you'll learn a lot. I also think that, um, My sister's podcast is pretty incredible. And if you want to listen to it, uh, the second season of the This Land podcast is all about this case. And you'll learn a lot about this case and this issue um, by listening to it. And I I can't recommend it enough. So the second season of This Land comes highly recommended as well. Thank you so much. Um, So there is one last question that I was thinking maybe we can um, answer. And it says... The dicta of the opinion at page 24 states, the burden is on the tribe or other objecting party to produce a higher ranked placement, end of quote. Does this mean that the states are excused from diligent searches for placement options? Well, um, you know, that is a good question. I think that certainly was a reason that's, I I know what sentence you're referring to. Um, I would not say that uh, child welfare agencies from the states are excused from looking for um, placements with Indian families. Um, I don't, I, I, that's not my reading of the statute or the regulations. Um, But at the same time, I think in terms of the context of the legal analysis that was being done there, is that if, you know, um, if one does not exist, then certainly then, you know, the child welfare agency can't be required to create one. Yeah. But certainly they have to to look around for one. And yeah. what does that mean? Um, and that can that can be debated. Thank you, MK. And I think this is a good time to kind of end today's conversation. I cannot thank you enough, MK. Uh, every time I sit with you, I learn more and I am forever grateful. And I know that, you know, my colleagues and our audience are too. We'd like to say uh, a final thank you to the Office of Family Violence Prevention and Services. Again, thank you to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, uh, to my colleagues at the Pivot team who are just as involved as we are in every production, Jessenia. My colleagues, Justenia, Deej, Mari, Liana, everyone who um, makes up our team uh, and to our listeners and our audiences that uh, take the time to listen to this. MK, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure catching up and chatting with you. And uh, yeah, thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pivot. Please be sure to check out show notes for any resources referenced during the podcast. 
You will also find discussion questions, which we hope will help you, our listener, continue dialogue around these very important topics. If you know of any work happening in your community that would add to the national discussion generated by this series, please email us a summary of the efforts and work taking place to the pivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. That email again is the pivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. We will be sure to get back to you. Last but certainly not least, we would like to express our deepest gratitude to Chance Taylor for all his support in editing all the episodes and to Sudubi Kuke for producing the series. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, your host, Wendy Mota. <laughs> <laughs>